0: Rosie Boycott, I'm the chair of the London Food Board. I work for the Mayor, Boris Johnson.
1: Um, and can you sum up what Capital Growth is and what it's achieved since it began? Yeah.
0: Um, capital Growth was started in, or launched in 2008. Uh, it was to some degree a steal from what has happened in Vancouver, which did a project, I'm not quite sure what they called it, but anyway, their, their aim was to create 2010 new vegetable growing sites in the city by the time of the 2010 winter olympics so we did 2012 sites by the time of the olympics of last summer so we had um we differed from vancouver quite a lot in that they counted every single plot within one say communal garden whereas we only counted a communal garden as one site uh what i'm trying to say is we did much better (laughs) Um, Anyway, it was one of those things that started on a very low-key way and seemed um, a pretty large task. And actually, looking back on it, it seems an extraordinary thing to set up to try to do. But somehow or another, City Hall got behind it, and we had an initial amount of money so that we could uh, give grants, small grants, um, sustain the Alliance for Better Food and Farming, became the delivery partner. So they were really on the ground, sorting it out and doing all the... plenty don't do that. Doing all the um, actual setting up of the gardens. And as I say, it was very okay. slow to begin with because we kept encountering a lot of problems like wanting to put gardens into building sites, um, odd bits of derelict land, because there was always issues of ownership of, say, building sites or derelict pieces of land. And a worry from on behalf of the owners of those places that once they'd allowed a group of people in to start a a vegetable garden they'd never get them out and so one of the very key things early on was the establishment of something called a meanwhile lease which just literally means that you are a temporary resident on that site, and it was a great persuader to the council. So we went at it in lots of different ways. There's 33 boroughs in London. We made all sorts of efforts to get them all to sign up. Efforts included, you know, writing directly to the chief executive. I would go to breakfast, which were held by the mayor when the different leaders of the councils would come in and talk to them. Um, Sustain and I, we also talked to um, large landowners. Institutions like the waterways, um, like the transport systems, the railways. Um, we talked to the housing associations, which are there are many and there are a lot of in London. And we then the housing associations were, were very instrumental in helping us establish gardens in high-rise estates, where quite often there would be an area that maybe at one point had been a playground and it had been abandoned. And the estate saw that very quickly that the gardens were incredibly valuable and created something that was way more than just a bunch of people growing vegetables because they brought safety, um, access, and a kind of, you know, a sense of community to places that that had been destroyed in. And we saw many, many, many occasions where areas between tower blocks had been, the, been, the, you know, been in the kind of ownership or dominion of gangs or teenagers or people smoking, taking drugs, fierce dogs, all that sort of stuff, which was very inhibiting to elderly people, mums with kids, all the sort of people who actually those spaces were designed to be for. But put the garden in and everything changed overnight. And... One of the things that has been fantastic is, and many things have been fantastic, but one thing is great is that the theft rate is so low, almost non-existent. Um, and I've heard residents say to me you know, that even though they don't have anything to do with their gardens, they may be looking over a balcony on the fifth floor and they might, if they see something they don't like, they shout, and then other people join in and shout. So they become very quickly a community asset. Um, as it stands now, um, sometime after when we finished, which we did opening up the two thousand and twelve at the end of two thousand and twelve. Yeah,
1: so the i mean the 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 driver for it was the people was the people kind of themselves getting on and and doing stuff what what insights and lessons have you gained in terms of how best to support bottom up act action and activism in that way
0: People going maybe in terms of being able to buy wood to build a raised bed or buy soil. Um, we did a lot of deals with different companies: Bulldog Tools, Bin Cube, those people who gave good discounts. We ran a lot of training days, which were really successful and people really liked. And, and they've done particularly well say, for, for beekeeping. And I think that people like being well. People like to learn something new. People like the fact that certainly in an urban environment, um, being part of capital growth gives you something that is outside of the urban environment. And it enhances the, you know, it makes life in the city better to stitch that into it. Um, I think think that, you know, the network itself has been important. I think people like being part of growing towards, you know, 2012 sites. We did a lot of, we do a lot of kind of site visits and take, people like Hugh Fernley Whittingston were great and we'd come along and especially in schools and talk about the gardening and talk about the cool things that you could have happen. We had days you know like big deep days when people would come as volunteers we had open days, we still have all these things it's not in the past, we have open days where people can come and see the gardens. We have a very good network on the web whereby you can type in your own postcode and it will flash you up where are your nearest Capital growth sites that you could go and join. So, and, and the website has a lot of terrific info and good stories.
1: absolutely and and uh, um, so I suppose for some people would argue that in terms of the in terms of the larger sort of crisis and climate crisis and so on uh, that there that you can't we can't expect leadership or support for resilience building to come from government or whether local or national but you've been one of those few people whose role has been working in government but specifically, Aim to try and link and support the two. Is it is it possible? I mean, you've. I mean, it is clearly possible. But what what are the limitations of it? How far can how far can something like the mayor's office go in terms of driving resilience? What are the blocks you come up against? Oh, hello. <coughs>
0: sorry, I'm going to sneeze. Well, going to sneeze. <coughs> um, what what are the blocks that I come up against? Or that... Hello. Hello. Sorry. What are the blocks that I come up against? or...
1: That uh, that trying to drive this kind of shift from the top comes well, up against.
0: I mean, it isn't a top-down event in the sense. I mean, it you can only you can only do so much, but you can at the same time. I think you you can do a lot, um, and that the fact of having the encouragement there from the top, I mean, you know, I think meant meant a lot. That that I mean, I certainly know that in our case, the fact that. This is something that appealed to Boris. And Boris and I went and launched the project together on a November day in 2008 or whenever it was, you know, and it seemed like a, a long way away. But he was he was very enthusiastic about it. It appeals to his sense of, you know, he, he's, uh, he likes the notion of trying to create a, a kind of, you know, a village life within an enormous metropolis you know, to, to localise and to make things smaller within the vastness. And so it suits him and he has backed it all the way. And I think the fact that we had I mean the fact that we had that initial funding was incredibly important because without the funding we would not we would not have had sustain. And I think that it's fair to say that probably the the presence of Sarah and Ben and Seb and all of them and Paula going round, seeing people, being them on Um, holding the whole thing together was probably as important as people getting hold of 500 quid. I mean, the fact that you had them coming in and telling people how to forge a relationship with the local builder's firm so that they could get the old.
1: And so the next step up. I mean, obviously, as you say, there's 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 a huge amount being created through capital growth. So what what would you see now as being the next step up in terms of urban agriculture in London? And does does it require land reform? I mean, one is what I alluded to
0: about. Uh, in in the sense of can we start really serious peri-urban farming, um, which I think absolutely think we can do, um, get people onto 20 acres, 30 acres, that sort of size or more. Um, there's, all, there's the Stowe and Enfield are themselves very serious about this because especially wolfenstow Stowe, you know, has the Lee Valley within it, so they've already got a really long. I mean hundreds and hundreds of years long tradition of supplying the city and that over the years has changed uh, diluted um and is now today really the specialization is cucumbers tomatoes and peppers and they are grown in um
1: capital growth success has been its messaging and, and the sense it seems to be that it's, it's something for, for everybody how have you messaged it beyond the usual suspects and what are the wider learnings do you think for for the wider kind of movement around this stuff sorry can
0: you say that again I'm, so I'm part, it seems like part
1: of you, the, the success has been the fact that it appealed beyond just the usual people who would get involved in this kind of thing um, and how how have you how did you do the, the, the communications and the messaging around it and what wider learnings might there be for the wider kind of movement around this stuff? I mean
0: the messages were really straightforward actually about it. you know we, we were we're responding in a sense to a growing interest in where food comes from and worry about an increasing worry about processed food and what you buy. Um we, we, we did quite frequently uh, do messages to do with, you know, what money you can save if you start growing your own. You know, hum, you know OK, you're not going to replace your entire shopping basket, but through the summer, you won't have to buy another lettuce and you probably won't have to buy another vegetable. So we would kind of come at it from every point of view, plus the fact that this was community engagement. And you know, without a doubt, this is, I mean, this is anecdotal, this is my experience, but without a doubt, the ones that were strongest did seem to be the ones that were really rooted in their communities and really involved old people, young people, middle-aged people, you know, I mean, a bit of everything, and kids in the mix. So there was a sense that the garden was a place to go as well as a um, a project, as well as a source of but, So, you know, the thing that. The garden could answer a lot of needs. And actually what's amazing about vegetable growing is it does answer a lot of needs. And we always feel a bit, I used to sort of feel quite stupid if I used to list off all these different things and people would look at you like, you know, you pull the other one. But actually it's true. An enormous amount of benefits do flow from mm-hmm. a community garden. So let's say we did messaging. I mean, if you were talking to people in high-rise, you know, the uh, estate owners of the housing associations, you might stress the community engagement, you might stress the um, the ability that the garden has to transform an unloved bit of land, to cut down the crime, to cut down um, increase security, etc. Talking to the waterways, it would be more about, you know, look, what's the point of the derelict space? Don't you actually want these spaces looked after? And of course we got lots of places all neatly tidied up that were that had been abandoned and that were going to cost whoever money to put back together again and you know here was a free army of volunteers uh, along to do something so there's usually a there's usually a particular good reason why that place would want to do it i mean places we sort of failed on the whole were um in the wild parks for instance i mean we've i've had more conversations with people in the royal parks over the four four years about having established gardens that could be used by local schools and you just kind of never get anywhere. Oddly, you know, you always seem to get better, get much further when you're using a bit of land that isn't already in use. I mean, I suppose that's kind of blinding the opposite on one level, but it always pissed me off that we never got <laughs> we never got anything properly in
1: there. And one of your kind of early career, I, sp- I suppose, high points of, uh, was uh, was setting up and editing spare rib for, for quite a long time. Have you noticed that urban agriculture has a has a good sort of well-balanced gender profile and what role can urban agriculture play in the empowerment of women, do you think?
0: Mm, good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Um, yeah, I would say that the gender balance is actually not too bad. Um, in terms of sort of still, though, in terms of more... Um, traditional farming, I think it's still quite a male preserve, but um, from terms of what we've been doing, I would say that there were just as many women, uh, maybe even more. That's a good question. I don't know absolutely the answer. But I think that anything like that is always very empowering to women because it's sort of physical and it's doing and it's growing and it's nurturing. And so it it fits in pretty naturally.
1: Mm. Yes, that's interesting. And the, well, the last question I had was really just about, as I said at the beginning this month we've been looking at scaling up transition and from your experience running capital growth what um, what, uh, what advice might you have?
0: Tell me a bit more about what you want how you want to scale where you want to
1: scale: Well, I guess uh, you know' it's been, we've been going for seven years, and there's transition now in forty four countries and thousands of thousands of initiatives and doing lots of stuff very similar to what you're saying actually in terms of social enterprise and mm-hmm. starting new food enterprises and community energy companies, but I guess it's still that thing of you know what's how would you you know there's that kind of innovations graph where you go from the the pioneers to the early adopters to the early majority to the whatever late adopters to the laggards or something, (laughs) and at the moment it feels like we're at that stage of how do you step across from the early adopters to the early majority, you know, how do you kind of mainstream these ideas and it seems like you've uh, done some aspects of this very successfully in terms of how you uh, engage across to the mainstream and just wondered what sort of suggestions or advice you might have Mm.
0: I suppose that and what we did something that was very uh, that was uniquely around London and the city. We weren't, you know, we said this is about the capital, this is capital growth, blah blah blah. Um, that said, it has been adopted, and through you know through the Big Dig, it's now in other cities in the same way that we have had a, a food policy in London now for quite a long time. And now we have an organisation called Sustainable Food Cities. And we have a lot of members and we're working with lots of cities now to get them to write food policies. So it's a lot about trying to explain the benefits that you can get. Um, and the benefits, you. I mean, in our, from our point of view, I think we're trying to say you know, that if you can get your... If you can get your what your policies are in a way embedded into, I mean, for instance, in the London plan that there are things like no new building can happen without there being uh, food growing spaces in them from word go. Um, you know, which is kind of small, but is also huge in a way. I mean, it's a big shift that they would look at that now. So, if it needs, if the transition plan to get taken up by. I mean, what's lovely about transition town is that it's about people doing whatever seems right for their their place. But at the same time, if you want people to take it up on a kind of quasi-government you know, level, it's got to be you, you've got to be able to see why the benefits are there very, very fast. Mm. Um, I mean, we can always point to things like less litter, less police, um, all of which you can too, by the way. I mean. All of you do, it's exactly the same tick boxes.
1: Yeah. But those tick boxes are, are really good. So building an evidence base. Definitely, uh-huh. all the time. And I guess just a very quick last thing is is what would be your sense of how far this could go? Where could where could we get to? Could you know, what's what's your vision of London in twenty years' time if this if this happened to the oh, extent you would but like it we to we
0: would have um, food growing on all on tremendous amount of rooftops. I mean, I think, hope we're about to get the go-ahead to put the first huge um, growing on top of a supermarket, which would be a Morrison's in Camden Town, um, that we would, I mean, we're trying to talk Tesco's at the moment into, oh, God, you better not put this in, but I'll tell you, but the, the, there was a guy called, uh, who had a budget store, and he would take small local businesses, local little local food companies, you know, like people making bread or people making... Sources or stuff from the kitchen and then try them out in the store. And then if they work, they'd get adopted as a mainstream food. And I'm now trying to scale that into 450 Tesco's to, you know, to start a lot of small food businesses. Um, you would have a really mixed food economy. At the moment, we have a mono food economy, or mostly mono food economy. And then in 20 years' time, you would have a really mixed one. And you know, we've got people starting to grow mushrooms under, arch, under railway arches. I mean, it's popping up all over now. And what's really nice is that six years or whatever it is now into this job, we can get money for them all. Not all, but for an awful lot, we can find pots and funds. And we, in fact, have now a pretty big grant system to small businesses. I mean, we've done street food, we've done sustainable packaging, we've done all sorts of small things that are low start-up prices and a lot of people are now coming to us and actually saying well, we'll fund you to do it and it's the same with, you know, we've got our first social supermarket open just before Christmas in Barnsley and we'll have hopefully the first one open in London within the next two months and then we'll be you know pushing out that, so there's a real sense of you know, if we can keep doing more and knitting them together and one leads to the next, but so you—you have a—you have a health.